You've been around a lot of successful people. What's the combo here between luck and hard work? Now that you've been around so much success, what, Not what would you say? Not a lot of luck. It's a lot more hard work. Yeah, I mean, there's always opportunities, but there are people that seize the opportunities and people that fumble them. Guys like Jimmy and David and Irving, they don't fumble. That was really well said. The hard work is what's consistent across the board and all the people that are really work, successful, work their right? butts off. But Dr. Dre works his ass off. I mean, he's in the studio all the time. You know, all these guys are. And even after, like, the crazy success, you know, the, the, the work ethic remains in, yeah. in what you see with these people. No question. Oh, I have a friend that's managing a huge songwriter right now. He said, we both have an appetite for the work. And I just thought that was a nice way to say it. Yeah. Welcome back, guys, to episode number 78 of Connection is Magic. This week, we have part two of my interview with Peter Paterno, longtime music lawyer for Pharrell, Dr. Dre, Metallica, and many more. This week, we get into his experience representing Pharrell and Robin Thicke in the Blurred Lines lawsuit, huge hit that Marvin Gaye's family sued Pharrell and Robin Thicke on. We get into Peter discussing the inception of Beats by Dre. We also touch on Peter's advice to new artists trying to make it in music today. That and so much more. Can't wait for you guys to check this one out here we go welcome everybody to connection is magic i'm your host samson shulman a former music executive turned podcaster and coach in a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain we end up feeling lonely and isolated and opportunities for human connection are missed on this podcast we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded unfiltered pieces We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to connection. You had two days to look over everything. Yeah. Did you find problems? (laughs) I assume in that two days or what? You know, you can only find so many problems. I mean, like like I said, Jimmy was trying to keep all the balls in the air and it was much better that they separated than... Yeah. That's, they, a, that's a really precarious time to be entering the picture, actually, for you. Yeah, I didn't was, realize that. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a little bit hairy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, did you need extra security? Because Suge was on the other side of the table. Well, there was, know. A, you know, at the <laughs> Interscope offices in those days, there was security all over the place. I, rem- I was there. I yeah. started out as an intern at Interscope. Yeah, was so like, there was all the security was there. Yep, yep. I, re- I remember, I'll never forget, you know, that there was a whole system, like, to when Jimmy was leaving and entering the building, they would, like, hold the elevator for, like, X amount of time, and it was a whole thing. And I remember I was there, they literally froze the building. They are like, nobody's going down, nobody's coming up, because Suge Knight entered the lobby one day, and they just kind of froze <laughs> yeah, <poor> everything. <laughs> I got along okay with Suge, actually. It's hard, it's hard to believe, but... He came over to see me at Disney because. <laughs> oh, let's hear. A, is there a Suge Knight story? Let's hear. Story. Well, um, there's two stories. Uh, one involves Easy and one involves Suge. So Suge came over because uh, we we're trying to. There was an artist, I think RBX, that we were fighting about. Yeah, yeah, I remember that artist. He was on the Chronic, mm-hmm. and Suge shows up, and I get a call from the security guard. And he says they're making me, you know, pat him down. And he goes, I went to high school with him. <laughs> the guy patting down Shug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other funny story was Easy E came to see me one day, and um, he got there early. If you can believe that, he showed up early, and, and I said, "You know, shocking." There's a Disney store on the lot there. I said, "Eric, why don't you get some stuff for your kids?" He's gonna you know, have half a dozen kids, 
And he goes, all right, man. I said, I'm in a meeting. I'll call you as soon as I'm done. Like 10 minutes later, I get a call from the lady at the Disney store going, oh, Mr. Paterno, this is Mildred at the, the Disney store. There, there's a gentleman here who says he needs to talk to you. I go, what's that? He says, here he is. Yo, Pete, it's Eric. You're going to come down and pay for this shit or should I just steal it? <laughs> oh, my God. That's one of the best stories I think we've had on here, Peter. Yeah. That's really good. It's pretty funny. So the ink dries on the Aftermath deal. Chronic 2001 comes out and it just uh, explodes. And then you're, are you overseeing the deals that, you know, Dre is doing on Aftermath, I assume? Like, did you oversee like the Eminem deal? Yeah, then? yeah. You did? You did? Yeah, okay. Did all, all right. those, yeah. All right. So you've gotten to meet Eminem a couple of times? <laughs> okay, here's the Do you Eminem have a good, story. I mean, you know, I'm from Detroit, so we'll, we'll take an Eminem story. All right, Peter, so Dre got. calls me up and he goes, yeah. I found this kid, you got to get it done. It's Tuesday, I said, it's got to be signed by Friday. We got to get this kid done. He calls you on a Tuesday and said, we need this done by Friday. Yeah, okay. so it was a rush, rush, rush to get it. He just, you know, Dre's got the great ear and he, he knew Eminem was the good, so he wanted it done before anybody else could get involved. And, you know, the other problem too is whenever Dre would be interested in people, other people would sign him anyway because it was Dre. And they, well, if Dre's into it, it must be good. So we, yeah. we rushed the deal and we got it done and I did You avoided with, a bidding war though, just to, to, for the record. There yeah, was no. Yeah, no, it just got record. done. Okay. I did the deal with Paul Rosenberg, yep. who's the manager now, but was a lawyer then. So a few weeks later, I'm in a meeting over at the Interscope offices, and we're all in a meeting, and this guy puts his head in and says, hey, I'm here, Jimmy. And he goes, why don't you go wait in the other room, and uh, and I'll see you in a second. I go, what was that? And he goes, that's that's uh, Eminem. I go, oh, I just did this whole deal with him. I you know, I was dealing with him. I never met him. So our meeting ended. I said, I'll go say hi to him. I go, and he's sleeping on the couch. <laughs> so I put my card on his chest you know just so he know that i was there and you know because i'd been dealing with paul and apparently jimmy says he woke up saw your card thought he was going to get arrested and he ran out to... <laughs> what because <laughs> he didn't know what a lawyer had what a lawyer's card was doing on his chest so oh that's funny man yeah. you've been around a long time and i'm sure there's been instances where you've seen ridiculously talented artists like not succeed right yeah how does that happen I mean, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're not that talented. You know, I don't know. I, I was going to say, like, you know, they could be the your A&R guy gets fired, right? Yeah. Or some political thing or, some, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, or just it's just not destined. There was a band I, I worked with called The Unforgiven. And I knew that they would either, I mean, I felt in my heart they would either sell five million records or they'd sell zero. And they sold zero. <laughs> but they were they were good. They were really good. Yeah. You know, but... You know, you have to you have to really want it, and you have to work your butt off. You have to work your ass off for it. There's it's no just doubt. not easy. Not that they didn't. I don't want to say that, but it's just sometimes it just doesn't happen, or your promo guy doesn't get it done, or. And on that note, I think a nice segue would be you know Chris Clancy, right? Yeah. So Clancy was a fantastic great. episode. Great human being, right? Yeah, Good guy. No, Clancy's great. Yeah. I just saw Tyler the Creator on Friday at. Uh, you know, Clancy manages Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I went and saw him at uh, the Crypt, or as he said, I won't call it that, at Staples. Tyler just, just killed. He was so good. Yeah, he's got it, huh? Yeah, he's yeah. really great. I love that he's an outlier. Yeah, I feel like that's the one thing you and I, we have that in common, Peter. I think we're fans of of the outliers, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that yeah. again, another story here. So one of those meetings with Michael Eisner, he yeah. comes bounding to the office and he says... Wait, for the record, sorry, the people might not know who Michael Eisner is that, that are listening. Chairman of the board of Disney before Bob Iger. There you and go. So he comes bounding into the office, uh, into our A&R meeting, and he goes, 
I just saw Kenny G last night. He was fabulous. Why can't we sign somebody like Kenny G? Yeah. And I go, um, yeah, it's never going to happen. He goes, what do you mean it's never going to happen? I said, I, I don't get that. I mean, he's just another ugly saxophone player that, you know, that somehow you market and you blow him up. Yeah, he exploded. Yeah. You know, I said, and to me, there's 99 other guys just like him, and he happened, and the other 99 didn't. Yeah. I said, you know, same with Mariah Carey, who, she, you know, she's obviously doing She's great. a great singer, though. But there's a lot yeah, of great there's a lot singers. of great yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, girls yeah, yeah, that are yeah, great yeah. singers. Yeah. I don't know why her. Yeah. And I said, you know, basically it's because somebody's willing to bet on her and put four million dollars to market her and blow her up. And sometimes it works and a lot of times it doesn't. Well, and so I mean, you know, I just said it's just not what I do. I find yeah. somebody that's sort of outside and, you know, they're different, like Prince or Axl Rose or somebody yeah. like that. And they come to the middle and the audience comes to them. You know, they sort of start way out on either either end and they come a little bit towards the audience, the audience comes to them. These other people are just marketing exercises. It's just not not what I do. I mean, God love Clive Davis. He's unbelievably great at it. It's just not what I do yeah and wow. as it turns out nothing is what i do since i got fired but you, yeah. that's actually like a clancy quote you know what i mean that's crazy that you said that because clancy literally said that on the show he said that um other people are amazing at science projects right putting that together he's like i'm not i suck at that he said yeah <laughs> you know i'll gravitate to authentically unique artists is like my favorite thing right yeah. andre 3000 from outcast dre yeah. tyler you know Pharrell. There's Pharrell's unique to me. So it's yeah. like, yeah. And those are the ones that actually have the longevity. So back to, let me you just finish even the... Even Kanye for, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, Kanye. Exactly. Yeah. There's only one Kanye. So, you know, back, just I wanted to bring home this point that Clancy makes. It was, I think it was well said. And he's like, I much prefer a slow build, you know, because you end up keeping the fans. He's like, he's like, if you just go right overnight, he's like, you know, year, a few years later, you can't sell 12 tickets, he said. You know, yeah. if it goes too no, fast. No, because you don't you build know? your fan base. Look at Metallica. I mean, they did it all. Yeah. Nobody even knew they existed, and they were selling out arenas. They were selling out at stadiums. That was a long process, Peter. Like, yeah. we didn't talk about the amount of years, by the way, that that, that I mean, was. you know, they they blew up into the into the overground and the above ground in like eight years, nine years after they started. Even probably longer, maybe almost ten. Wow. And I was aware of them the whole time. I was aware of how huge they were. And they were incredible the whole time. And, and they were doing great business, but nobody knew. That's great. I, I just get blown away because, you know, he also managed Frank Ocean, who I think you represented briefly. Yeah, right? our firm still represents Frank. You know, Channel Orange was like one of my favorite albums Frank did. And I'm like, how does that take, how how was there any period of struggle for like an artist as brilliant as Frank Ocean? It's just not, there's just stuff that just doesn't react immediately or it's just too different for people to understand. And it They got to catch up to it. Yeah. Like you said, can you say it the way you said it was great? You're like the... The artist moves a little bit and the audience moves a little bit. Can yeah, you say it again? Yeah, they all move to the middle. And when they finally get together, it's, it's then explodes. It, then, it, then it blows up. Yeah. Yeah, super. That's really well said. Um, so then I think a great transition would be into the Blurred Lines lawsuit. Can we touch on that a little bit? Yeah. How does that get on your desk, Peter, the Blurred Lines lawsuit? That was a huge deal. Obviously important precedent and, and effect on overall... And a really you know, horrible decision. Yeah. And a horrible decision. I know. I did go. But how did it land on your desk? Were you guys already working well, we with got a, we got a We got a claim from um, the lawyer. And he goes, you know, um, we're going to... You were already representing Pharrell. I was representing Pharrell. Prior to yeah. the, the suit, right. Okay. But he called up saying, you know, this you know, the, this is a ripoff of uh, uh, Got to Give It Up. And I go, all right. Well, I mean, I know that song. Let me listen to it. So I, after he got off the phone, I listened. I go, I don't hear it. Mm. 
And I listened to it again. I go, I still don't hear it. But you know what? Let me send it to a musicologist. So I sent it to a musicologist. Mm -hmm. Send it to two musicologists. They go, no. Nothing not, here. Not, right. Nothing here. Mm -hmm. The notes aren't the same. The chords aren't the same. The words aren't the same. I go, I, the feel's the same. You know, I get that. You know, but a blues record, every blues record feels like every other blues record. That's what's Completely. supposed to happen. So I, I, don't, I don't really get it. And so the guy just keeps threatening to sue me. So we sued him. Because we didn't want to end up in his home court, so we sued him in L.A. Yeah, I remember. I was I, we had a, a meeting somewhere around that time because it was interesting to pull the trigger when you're the defendant. Yeah, and, the, and the, you know they made a big deal about it, like they yeah. sued us. That's yeah. that shows you what they're about. We sued you. You would have sued us. We're gonna we're gonna back off the seriously. Was he gonna back off the claim? <laughs> I know. Right. You know when yeah. I sued him, then he, he should have just said, "Oh, we didn't really mean it." No, <laughs> didn't matter who sued who. They were gonna. There was gonna be a lawsuit. It was gonna. It was gonna happen yeah, unless yeah, the yeah. guy was willing to back off, and that was not gonna happen. So yeah. there, there it is. Was there a period of like mediation where you thought you could mediate this thing with the other side before? for actual litigation there was yeah we had some mediations and then we had a the day before trial we went yeah. over and met with them at famous studio was it marvin studio i don't remember anyway but we you and the other side lawyer yeah and, and uh jan gay and pharrell and and uh i don't know if robin was there or not and we tried to settle it and we offered him and again remember i thought the lawsuit really sucked yeah, yeah, you thought it kind of had no chance. I didn't say it had no you know, chance. I would never say oh, that. Right, right. You want to yeah. settle. As a lawyer, you always want to settle because you never know what could happen. Because you're, you're rolling the dice on people that might not know music. Well, <laughs> not only do they not know music, the judges don't read music. They don't understand music. They get script cases right. Like when somebody sues about a script, you know, they can read. So they're thinking, well, this... <laughs> This That's thing is the yeah, this is the same as this thing. Yeah, they can't. Oh, the guy music. kidnaps the girl, and then you know. Yeah, right? it's like we've seen <laughs> yeah, it before. Right. Music they don't get. I mean, yeah. you know, the the fact of the matter is, yeah. uh, Pharrell did an unbelievable job of knocking off the feel, but yeah, the songs weren't the same. I can make. I can make any song sound like some, you know. You're making a point here that, that music is so subjective, though. How it hits well, it's one not person, isn't no, it? No, no, it's not subjective. Oh, not. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, you can look. If the chords are the same, the lyrics are the same, the melody is the same, it's an infringement. But right. that's not what's happened here. I can make a bluegrass version of Gin and Juice, which you've, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like a bluegrass song. Because right. Because you put in banjos and picking, and all of a sudden you've got a bluegrass song. But it doesn't change the fact that the song is what the song is. But to reference the point you made about you show somebody a script, it is what it is, it's black and white, right? You said they're script, they're, they're better at handling... Well, they can, read, they can read scripts, they can't read music. Right. So there's more nuance in it that they're going to well, miss. Well, it's just more ignorance. <laughs> I met a Supreme Court justice and I told her that I said, you know, you guys should leave the music cases along, you get them wrong all the time. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> she really was looking for an exit at that point. <laughs> So the, the, the other place I feel like we breezed over important, you ran Hollywood Records for a period of time, right? I did, yeah. And, and you were like, I'm doing something wrong here because I'm over 40 and I'm signing better acts than my A&R staff. Well, I mean, the stuff that I signed is the stuff that, the only stuff that worked was stuff that I signed. Right. Again, in my view of it, it was, like, you know, I got to hire an A&R person, I'll let them give them the rope, but... yeah. You know, I said to him, look, if I hear it and I think it sucks and you still want to put it out, I'll put it out. But if it doesn't work, you know, that and, was their job. I mean, I'm not telling them what to sign. Look, I mean, there are bands that I hate. Pink Floyd. I wish they'd sign my label. Pink Floyd. I hate Pink Floyd. Wow. 
But oh. it would have been nice if somebody labeled signed them. There's a guy, an A and R man in the nineties. Remember when grunge was king? Yeah. So like, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, this yeah. apparently there was a guy, my mentor is a guy named Tony Ferguson. I don't know if you know him. He's know an interscope. Tony. Tony's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I, I was I was under working with Tony for, for a lot of years and he said that there was a guy who was the king of grunge, A and R guy named Brian Huttenhauer. Oh Did, yeah. You know him? Yeah. And apparently, you know, Tony's like, I don't know what the hell happened to this guy, but he was killing it and then he just disappeared. A and R is a tough gig. I mean, look, I signed Queen. Everybody hated it signing. Everybody thought it was stupid, you know? Post Bohemian Rhapsody though, right? You signed them? What do you mean post Bohemian? There was two Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> periods. There was the first time around. Wayne's World. That was yeah, me. Yeah, that was you. Okay, okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that people might find that interesting. So, like, they were, were was Queen languishing for a period of time? Queen was as dead as anything could be in North America. They couldn't have been more dead. They had been on Electra, and I was Electra's lawyer, as I pointed out before, and they called me up, and I remember I was in Hawaii doing this on a payphone over Christmas, getting Queen off the label because Krasnow, the... You know, didn't want him anymore because he had a. It was an expensive deal, and if he could get rid of him, he could save some money. Yep. So he got rid of him, and yep. this is the mid '80s. And then for the rest of the '80s, they really did not have a great time in North America. They, by the way, the rest of the world, huge, gigantic, mm. as big as anybody could be. But North America, and especially the U.S., they were kind of nothing happening. I mean, North America, U.S. and Canada. Yeah. But I loved them, so I got my job at Hollywood Records, and I sent a fax to Jim Beach, the manager, and I said. Hey, Beach, is, is Queens available in the U.S.? And I, he writes back, he goes, yes. And I go, because Beach is the guy I'd done the exit deal with, so I knew Beach really well. And I said, I'd like to sign him. He said, would you like to buy the catalog also? And I go, of course. <laughs> so we negotiated a deal, we yeah. signed him, and I, if you want to go look back at some really bad press, look at the press that I got for signing Queen. He's okay. a moron, how could he sign this horrible, wow. washed up band? You know, This is the problem with Disney, they put this guy in charge, he doesn't know what he's doing. Which might have been true, but I didn't know what I was doing with Queen. <laughs> so I signed Queen, and I did my numbers, and we were gonna get our money back. I mean, we, you know, it was $10 million, we were gonna get our money back, it was gonna take seven or eight years, but we were gonna get our money back. Yep. Then Freddie died, which was super sad. Yeah. And so I go, well, now it looks like three years. Because dead people sell more records. Yeah, right. when they die. So what happens is uh, I get the script for Wayne's World, and they've written that scene into it. And I read the script, and the script sucks. <laughs> and so they call up and say, can we have Queen for the, you know, for the movie? And I go, yeah, sure. And there's a lot of stories around this. This is really what happened. But I said, yeah, sure. And they go, we want to put on the soundtrack album. I go, no. So I just pay $10 million for this catalog. I'm not giving you a song that I just paid for and put it on your soundtrack album. So you want to use it in the movie, you can use it in the movie. They said, well, if we can't get the soundtrack album rights, we're going to take it out of the movie. And I go, okay. And why did I say okay? The script sucked. I, it was written into the script, by, and so I knew they weren't going to take it out anyway. I worked in the <laughs> studios long enough to know that when the director's got something... It was written. like chicken, basically, and you knew that you know they yeah. were going to move. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I just yeah. said, and I didn't care, because I ah. thought the script sucked, so it didn't really matter to me. So they go back and forth, and they go, well, we really like to use it. I go... I told you, you can use it. You just uh, can't put it on the soundtrack album. No. Uh, so Mo Austin calls me up. He's, a, you know, he's got the soundtrack album. And he goes, I really need to have this on my soundtrack. It's just an embarrassment to me if I can't have this with Warren Michaels and my relationship. And I go, you know, Mo, you've always been a gentleman. You've always been the best guy in the business. And I go, if it's really that important to you, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so he goes, thanks. And so we give him this, the rights. And this is like in November or something. In January, I go to a screening of Wayne's World. And the movie's brilliant. Mm. 
So I go home that night and I call up my head of video and I go, Stu, we got to make a video for this Wayne's World movie. He goes, right away. He goes, I'm on vacation. I go, no, it got to be right away. Why? I thought you said it sucked. I go, no, I said the script sucked. <laughs> the movie's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> so he called up Penelope Spheris, who was the director of the movie, got her to shoot the video and that's what happened. It, and it, we got our investment back in a week. <laughs> You're 10, 10 million bucks. Like within three or four weeks, it was it was already earned back. Unbelievable. It just blew up so huge. That scene's iconic, right? Of yeah. course. But that was also a little bit of lightning in a bottle with how quickly you made your money back. Well, let me tell you what I told everybody. I go, okay, when I signed him, everybody was giving me a bunch of crap for signing it. I go, look, there's three songs in this catalog everybody knows. Another one bites the dust. We will rock you. We're the champions. Something will happen with one of those songs. I was completely wrong. It was Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> but right. same concept. With a group that great and a catalog that incredibly wonderful, it's just... I'm surprised they were counted out, Peter, to be honest. You know, but that was the yeah. attitude, you know? Like, basically, they were washed up. You know, he Freddie had made that, uh, that movie, I Want to Break Free, that video where he's vacuuming in a dress, and so he's <laughs> a gay guy, and then he do, they do Radio Gaga, and the American radio's going, you're not going to tell us Radio Gaga. Screw you guys. Too controversial at the time. You know? Old, you know, white guys that were controlling uh, rock radio at the time yeah. just decided, we don't want this aging queen uh, messing up our airwaves. <laughs> It's, you know, yeah. talking about Radio Gaga. And I'm oh sitting there going, God. this guy is great, and you guys suck, and that was that. That's a great story, Peter. That's a great story. So is it true that MTV, which was king at the time, would not play Guns N' Roses, and David Geffen had to make a deal and say, all right, we'll just play the video at like 4 a.m. on like a Tuesday? I heard something like that. Because they were a phenomenal band. I mean, have you seen them live, I assume, right? I was their lawyer. You Wait, you were their lawyer? Yeah. That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> Go crazy. To so, can you have a, do you have a fun Axl Rose story for us? I do. Well, that's actually... It's, <laughs> like, uh, actually, it's a Slash story. Um, so, you know, there, we, I tried to pretend there was a bidding war for Guns N' Roses, but there really wasn't. Tom Zutat just was really, really into the band, and, you know, I tried to get other interests, and there was some, but... Because hair metal was ruling at the time, right? And yeah. this was a little bit it was different. left of it center. Was, it was, yeah, 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 it was different. Yeah. So we were going to make the deal with Geffen. And, you know, David was my friend. And, you know, I was maybe happy we were going to do the deal with him anyway. So he wants to meet the band. So we go over to Geffen Records on Sunset. Mm -hmm. And the band's sitting there. David walks in. And he goes, whose car is parked in my spot? <laughs> Everybody's going, nothing. I don't want to use cars in my parking lot. And finally Slash goes like this. Go move your car. He's never met him before. So he sends him out, he moves the car, comes back, we're doing a meeting up in Geffen's office, and Geffen looks at Slash, and he goes, I know you. He goes, no, no you don't. He goes, yeah, I do. What's your name? Slash. He goes, no, that's not your name. What's your name? He goes, Saul. Saul what? Saul Hudson. Your mother, Ola Hudson, she used to work for me, didn't she? He goes, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. What'd she do? She was um, in the marketing department. Oh, I, don't, wow. I don't know exactly oh, what she did. unbelievable. Yeah. And David recognized him. I don't know how. I have <laughs> no idea. Axel was a wild guy, right? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, wild. crazy good. Carrying on with this, Peter, then then you were around for Nirvana too then, right? You must have been. No. Uh, well, yes and no. Okay, uh, what happened? So I, you know, was working with Soundgarden. You were Soundgarden's attorney? Yeah, I was Soundgarden's lawyer. This is fucking nuts. This is, this is interview. Like, we need two parts here. Um, okay, we'll, we'll put a pin in that, but finish the, and, the Nirvana and, thing. So I get a call from, this is, a, there's some book, I don't know what book it is, but I get a call from Susan Silver, who is managing Soundgarden. Okay. And she goes, I'll get this other band I want you to meet with, 
And I go, well, I'm leaving to take a job at Disney. I'm going to run the record company. So the story in this book is that I was too important to meet with Nirvana, when in fact, of course, that was not the case. I was just done. And I made a sort of half-feeble effort to sign them when I was at, at Hollywood. Newly at Hollywood, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 I just didn't offer anywhere near enough money, but... Was that a bidding war band then? Nirvana? Yeah, I turned what, into was... a bidding war. When I first got to Hollywood, mm -hmm. since I knew about him, because I had worked with Sub Pop, I was Sub Pop's lawyer too. But, you know, a lot of the other labels were just trying to sign Nirvana away from Sub Pop, and I felt like if I was going to do a deal, I should do a deal with Sub Pop. How did that fall flat again? It just, just wasn't the money wasn't there. I just don't think I was, you know, I was new and I wasn't ready to throw money around. Okay, so back to Soundgarden. Where was the first, how did you first get introduced to Soundgarden? Were you blown away? And was, was there any interesting stories there? Rest in peace, Chris. Great yeah, guy. Chris yeah. is a really, really yeah. good guy. Um, no, I just heard about it from an A&R guy, that they, Bob Pfeiffer, actually, that they, there was this band I should check out, and they were playing San Francisco. So I flew up to San Francisco and met with them wow. and Susan Silver, and it just ended up representing them. And I mean, you saw them, you were blown away by the show, and you're like, yeah. I want to work with you? Yeah. Uh. Chris is like an incredible singer. He's incredibly good looking. And yeah. Yeah. One of the most iconic rock voices. Yeah, no, incredible. Like, yeah. And just a great guy. What yeah. label did they end up on where you, you did the... A&M. They ended up on A&M. Yeah, but they had some early records out before then. Screaming Life, I think, was one of them. They, they took forever, too, to build. You were there before they blew up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't clear on that. Wow. They, I did the A&M deal. That was their first major label. And then, label yeah, deal. it took a minute to get the album together. And then I mean, it took Bad a Motorfinger was their third album. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit, Peter. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable, even with a talent like that. Now, um, we'll, we'll start bringing it home here. The the Beats by Dre, you know, there's a lot of, you know, what do they call it? Where the telephone story happens and then, like, the story, like, devolves right, yeah. as it goes through the telephone, telephone more. Yeah. Like, so, but we've got, you know, the man here that's, you know, you were pretty close to it, right? So, rumor was... Um, there was some type of jogging in Malibu or something. Walking. Right? It was walking in Malibu? Walking. Can you give us the story since you, you know it really well? Well, I mean, what happened was, you know, I would go to Dre and I have a list of things, you know, like every month or two I would get together and go over the list of people that had called and things that, you know, people B had wanted. Business to deals, opportunities. Yeah, like, right, yeah. Right. you know, people would call. They wanted to know, if, you know, if Dre would produce somebody or something like that. So I had my list and I was going down the list and we... We went out to the beach, and Jimmy was staying out at the beach, and Dre has a beach house. Mm -hmm. and, this is uh, somewhere in Malibu. In Malibu, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're walking down the beach, and I'm going over my list, and this shoe company. It was, uh, I don't think it was Nike. Reebok, Adidas. It was one, one of those. One of those. Somebody wanted to talk about a shoe deal. And Jimmy said, Dre, you shouldn't be doing sneakers. You should be doing speakers. And so that's how the whole thing came together. Wow. And he was really close to taking this sneaker deal, right? No, no, no. That's the part that's wrong. I, okay, okay. I, it was a list of things I was going over with him. I wasn't pushing him to do a sneaker deal. I was just okay. going. He, Dre turns most everything down, you know. Right. So, but I don't. But I want to let him know because I don't want to make the decision for him. Yeah. You know, if I don't tell him, he can't make a decision. Yeah, completely. So I just I was going down my list, and that was on the list. And Jimmy goes, Dre, you shouldn't be doing sneakers. You should be doing speakers. <laughs> And on that note, Peter, you know, you've gotten to spend, so you spent a ton of time around David Geffen, who like was an outlier, and then you spent a ton of time around Jimmy, obviously, right? Yeah. Now, what have you, remember I had you kind of earlier in the interview, I had you condense 
uh, can you, if you had to condense kind of the uniqueness of David Geffen, you kind of did that. If you had to do that with Jimmy, could you, what makes him so, what, you know, so unique or so great at what he does? What he just, is it? He has you know, a different view of the world. He's like mm-hmm. really in, intuitive and kind of very charming and knows how to push all the right buttons. He reacts to what other people hear, you know, so he'll play stuff. You go to his office and he'll play you what well, he did back in the day. Yeah. And sort of try to figure out, you know, he'd sort of see how people reacted. And I think he just took sort of an amalgamation of all that and he'd sort of process it and come up with, uh, you know, okay, this is going to work and I'm going to push this. So not such a giant ego, let's say, where it's like, oh, this is it. He would almost kind of no, survey he, a little bit, right? Would, yeah, no, no question. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. He'd worked with John Lennon. He'd worked with Tom Petty. He's worked with these guys. You defer to people like that. But I that, mean, you know, Jimmy's never, you know, he's got an opinion. He's, he's not going to sit there and tell you it's good if it, he thinks it sucks. But, you know, he's also going to listen. You've been around a lot of successful people. What's the combo here between luck and hard work what's that combo now that you've been around so much success what would you say it's a lot more hard work (laughs) yeah i mean there's always opportunities but there are people that seize the opportunities and people that fumble them and guys like jimmy and david and irving is up they don't fumble that was really well said but but if you if you had to if you just had to say it in one line the hard work is what's consistent across the board and all the people that are really work, successful, work right? butts off. But Dr. Dre works his ass off. I mean, he's in the studio all the time. You know, all these guys are. And even after, like, the crazy success, you know, the, the, the work ethic remains in, yeah. in what you see with these people. No question. Yeah. I don't know. I have a friend that's managing a huge songwriter right now, and he said, um, he said, we both have an appetite for the work. And I just thought that was a nice way to say it. Yeah. Shout out Andy Steinway. Do you know my friend Andy Steinway? He's a manager. I do know him. I yeah. dealt with him. I, I don't remember when. So not long ago, there was the whole Wu-Tang Clan doing like one album. They weren't going to make any copies for like three right. million bucks or whatever that. Yeah. I'm like, I want to know what Peter has to say about this. I think that'd be kind of interesting. I don't know. I can't believe that they pulled it off. I mean, I don't wow. you know. And it turns out the guy that bought it was that. Screlly, Martin Screlly, which yeah. is a pretty hated guy in Yeah, in I think mainstream. Uh, basically, didn't he get convicted of something? I, yeah. think he's serving yeah. a sentence, maybe, yeah. But the concept, how does the concept of, oh, one album, nobody else can hear it, I wasn't crazy about it, because I'm like, this is Wu-Tang Clan, like, why not let more people hear it? It's, it's just a, a physical NFT is the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Did you ever meet, uh, random, but did you ever meet Hugh Hefner by chance? Because you've been like... I did, home. actually. Any any thoughts on Hugh? I, the way I, I met him, because Metallica... <laughs> yeah played the, a party at the Playboy Mansion for the South Park movie. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Trey, an and, Trey and Matt had Metallica, they had Metallica play a show at the Playboy Mansion. So I met him there, and then I sat next to me at a ball game once with seven women. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming off of the pandemic. What, what, what's the count right now, Peter? About two years, maybe? Yeah. Coming, coming through it people have learned things about themselves learned things about the world what's kind of new for you as a result of like going through that whole experience did you learn anything new about yourself do you, do you see the world in a new way anything like that uh, part of what <laughs> i learned is i like staying at home <laughs> that's, that's <great>. <laughs> I think when I asked you that, you're like, damn it, I got I to gotta go to all these functions again. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Lunches, meetings. You know, the other side of the coin, though, Peter, is I think that virtual communication has become 
the I don't norm, like that either. Right? I don't like I don't like that either. You don't like virtual communication. No, I don't. But I I like not having to go to meetings and lunches and I miss like I missed the Grammys for the first time. It was actually kind of good. On that note, the Super Bowl just happened with Dre, right? Yeah. Now you went to that. I definitely went to that. Oh, how was that seeing Dre? I mean, that's a pretty a monumental triumph. moment, right? It was a triumph. The guy just completely hit it out of the park. He's 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 a genius. Was he like backstage, kind of just beaming? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. No, he knew he killed it. He put the whole thing together. He did an unbelievable job. It was his idea to have fifty hanging upside down. Even I don't, I don't know the exact details, but it was his idea to have fifty. So wow. Yeah, yeah. It was my idea to put the to have him be the Super Bowl. It, wait, it was your idea to have Dre play the Super Bowl? Yeah. What? How we, that wasn't brought up yet? What the fuck? How did that come about then? That'd be an interesting story. Me and uh, my partner, Howard King, I spoke about earlier, were yeah. down at SoFi Stadium okay. two years ago mm-hmm. when they were building it and they were trying to sell Dre a suite. Interesting. Okay. And so I said, Dre, you know, the Super Bowl is here in two years. You should do the halftime show. It's LA. It's about you. He goes, get the fuck out. He goes, can you make that happen? I go, I don't know. I'll try. And so basically, I props to Steve Berman because he had a similar idea. Uh, Berman and I worked on it and eventually got to Jay-Z. And Jay-Z said, it's got to be Dre. Wow. And that's how it happened. Jay-Z had to sign off on that somewhere? Well, Jay-Z is a consultant with the NFL for the halftime show. Got it. Okay. I so, wasn't even aware of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So him and Desiree Perez were sort of the two key people. So you guys kind of conceived this and went to Jay-Z and Desiree yeah. and then it was it was a done yeah. deal. Yeah. Oh, Peter, I mean, we, you know, there's, there's so many stories here from Dre to Soundgarden to, uh, you know, all these Metallica. Um, I just, I think you've done phenomenal work in your career and it's, it's an honor to have uh, gotten to sit down with you and talk about all this. Thanks. Thank you. Um, any advice, last thing for the artist that is working their ass off right now, you know, who's talented trying to, trying it's to really a do, do it yourself world. It's not like when I was coming up where you take a tape, shop it to an A&R guy, the A&R guys have to come to you. Good, which is a good thing in a way, right? Now well, the power is with more of the, the creatives. Yeah, but it's a lot harder because there's, so, cause much there's noise. so much noise. Yeah. You got to do a lot of the work yourself, you know. It's there's, it's there's that, no there's no you know golden ticket. You got to work yourself. Yeah, the 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 briefcase with the money in the limousine days are over. Over. <laughs> well, if I feel like if the sustain knowing that things like Soundgarden you said took forever, Metallica took you said to there's something about knowing that it, that's kind of uh comforting in a way you know what i mean because you could be great at something but just remember even the greats took took a while and that was back then yeah you know yeah so, if it doesn't take a while it usually doesn't stick that's right not and, always but usually and and different is good because it Very means good. you're gonna have a sustainable thing hopefully yeah you're gonna have real fans real People fans really like you there it is we hope you guys got a lot of this episode thank you so much for tuning in peter thank you again thanks sam all right we'll see you soon we'll see you next episode guys thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode it really means the world to me if you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you please visit our podcast on itunes and leave a rating or review this helps build our audience please comment like and share this episode out with your family friends coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. 
The world is in such great need right now and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, please stay connected.